0: in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to end the first chapter of Philippians today. We'll start at verse 27. And uh, while you're turning to Philippians chapter 1, you, you can find Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go eat popcorn, right? There are a few others, I think. Anybody know another one? Isn't there another one? Right. Okay. Good. All right. Well, the Philippians church planter, the guy that started it all, is in jail. And, of course, they're tempted to get discouraged. We got a man down. He's captured. He's he's stuck in jail. He's going to rot in jail. And Paul wants them to know, in this first chapter, that no, I'm not rotting in jail. Don't worry about me, says Paul. My heart is full of joy. My heart is full of joy that no Roman soldier can take away. He says in this first chapter that I am put here by God for the sake of ...of the gospel, for the defense of the gospel. And don't worry about the gospel because it's still spreading. Even jerks are preaching it. These people, had, they don't like me. They are angry. They are weird. They've got bad motives. And you know what? I can even find something to rejoice in there... ...because when the jerks preach the gospel, the gospel is still the power of God... ...unto salvation for everyone who believes... And furthermore, says Paul, I don't know whether they're going to kill me or not. Or whether they're going to let me out. If they let me out, I can come see you again. I'd love to do that. But if they kill me, I get to see Jesus. I'd rather see Jesus than you. But you need me, so I'd rather see you. Now, and I'll wait until they do kill me, and then I get to see Jesus. Because for me to live is Jesus Christ. And to die is gain. And then he turns a corner right here at verse 27. And this begins a whole new section of Philippians that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks, which includes part of the second chapter as well. Verse 27, listen to the word of God. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. The word of God. Only. He starts out this new section with the word only. I just got one thing I got to tell you, he says. I, can you just do this one thing? Let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel. Oh, my. My. This is no small thing, folks. We've been singing about the gospel. We've been singing about how the gospel is amazing and how the gospel is true and how the gospel changes our lives. And he says, just one thing, y'all. Live your lives in such a way that your life together as a church is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the first verb there, live your lives or conduct your lives, do you know what the word is? It's the same word we get the word politics from. And he's saying live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's the literal Greek translation, live as citizens. Now, citizenship was a big deal in Philippi, because Philippi was a colony of Rome. And if you had a Roman citizenship, you were special. As a Roman citizen, you had privileges, you had rights, you had discounts on movies and concerts and restaurants. And Paul even kept himself from being whipped by a soldier by saying, Before you whip me, is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen without having a trial? And the soldier said, whoa, never mind. And then the the head of the soldier came over and said, "Uh, Paul, we're so sorry. You know, I had to pay big bucks for my Roman citizenship. And Paul said, ha ha, I was born a Roman citizen. And they said, okay, okay, we won't whip you now. And so Roman citizenship was a big thing. It's something that they were always thinking about. But then, and then, Paul used the same Greek word later in the third chapter of Philippians. And he says, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, when he says, conduct yourselves as citizens... In a manner that is worthy of the gospel, is he talking about citizens of Rome or citizens of heaven? I think it's both, and I'll tell you why. Because Jesus prayed in the cha- in 17th chapter of John, and he said to the Father, I do not ask you to take your people out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one." We are called to be citizens of Philadelphia and citizens of heaven. Our heavenly citizenship tells us who we are and whose we are. We are fundamentally citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But as citizens of Philadelphia, we live our lives worthy of the gospel or are called to live our lives worthy of the gospel. Now, Let's talk about this a bit. And, and I've got to tell you, as I was studying for this sermon, I, you know, I mean, every time I study for a sermon, I get hit with a few demons. Um, you know, telling you, oh, it's not going to be any good. Um, it's going to be the worst sermon I've ever preached in Christendom. Um, it's, it, 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 Nobody's going to understand it. Nobody's going to get it. Nobody's going to like it. And, and, you know, you start thinking about all those, those things. And then I started reading this passage, and I started thinking about this passage, and I thought, my goodness, I'm really getting convicted, actually. Not by the little, at this point, I'm starting to get convicted by the Holy Spirit about my life. So when I'm talking to you about this passage that calls us to live as citizens in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, I'm not telling you from the top down. I'm telling you as one helpless, dependent on Jesus, messed up person who is repenting of my sins to other helpless, messed up people who are repenting of your sins. We are repenting together. So with that in mind, let's dig in. Now, over against the gospel, now here we are. We're citizens of Philadelphia, citizens of the United States. And in the United States, it seems that, I mean, if you've ever watched a movie or if you have ever watched television in the last ten years, you discover that it seems like most Americans believe in karma. Karma. You give to the universe, the universe will give back to you. If you are a mean person, somebody's going to get mean to you. Um, church karma. We bring karma in the church and baptize it. Karma is is an eastern religious concept and and it's antithetical, It means it's wrong, to the gospel. But church karma, we bring church karma in. If I do the right thing, God will bless me. If I do the wrong thing, God will get me. So when you find that perfect parking space, you think, I must have been living right today. And when you get that bad diagnosis from the doctor and you say, what did I do to deserve this? That's church karma. Life is too messy for karma to offer any hope. And this is where the gospel comes in. New Life Church is a gospel-driven church. Instead of church karma... God will bless me if I do it right. God will get me if I don't. Instead of, I really should do more. I really should try harder. I really should be more involved with it. It's Christ has done it all. And then, that makes me willing and ready to do anything for Jesus Christ. This is the kind of preaching that, attracted me back in 1984 when I first started coming here was how Christ got all the glory for doing everything for us and all of a sudden there's this energized atmosphere of people wanting to do ministry. You would think that if you said Christ will bless you if you do ministry and get you if you don't, that that would be motivational. But that that motivation lasts for about two and a half days. But gospel motivation lasts for a lifetime. If I really believe that Jesus Christ has set me free from all my sins, that the weight of my guilt is something that I don't bear anymore because Jesus has borne it once and for all at the cross and has set me free from it forever, and that this is something I never have to work off, if I really believe that that is the case, I'll do anything for Jesus. That's gospel motivation. And it makes all the difference in the world. A good example of this is the book of Titus. At the beginning of the book of Titus, Paul says to Titus, now, you're, I know you're church planting in the island of Crete. Let me tell you. This is what they're saying about themselves, and it's probably true. That they're liars, <laughs> evil brutes, and lazy glutton. Mm. Have fun planting your church, Titus. But then at the very end of a big passage, he says, and you're going to have a people zealous for good works. Now, how do you get from liars, easy, lazy brutes, lazy gluttons and evil brutes to a people zealous for good works? Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God which has appeared to all, teaches us to say no to ungodliness, and teaches us to live godly and self-controlled lives. It is the grace of God that transforms the human heart, and nothing less than the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ will actually transform a human heart. The gospel declares, That Jesus Christ has obeyed in your place. He died in your place. And caused you to be born again and gave you faith to see the kingdom of God and to enter the kingdom of God. And it transforms your life with new goals, new priorities, because you have a new master. So what is the gospel about? The gospel is about at least three things and, and much more, but I'll just say these three things. The gospel is, first of all, about the holiness of God. The gospel is about the holiness of God. In the gospel, God does not look at your sin and say, "Ah, no big deal." No. In the gospel, God sees our sin for what it is—how ugly it is, how an aff- how how it is an affront against the holiness of God, and and so. He sends his holy son to die for unholy us, to make us holy so that a lifestyle worthy of the gospel takes holiness seriously. It takes God seriously. So then you begin to have holy business dealings. You begin to have holiness in your sex life. You have holiness in your relationships. And the places in your life where you know that they are not holy, you are walking in repentance. You're saying, yes, I know I'm a mess. And Jesus Christ died for all my sins. And the continual messes that I continue to make and those sin patterns, I am walking in repentance. I'm looking to Christ. I'm not looking to myself. And I'm not keeping score of how I am doing. I don't I base my joy on how I did today and how I did last week. I base my joy on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I turn away from this crap because it doesn't honor Jesus whom I love. You see, it's a gospel holiness. And so that translates in holy business dealings and holy relationships and holy sex life. The gospel is also about the grace of God. In Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 says that it is by grace you have been saved. It is through grace. I receive what Jesus Christ has done for me and I receive it with empty hands of faith so that the church living worthy of the gospel moves into the lives of others, not with an attitude of superior righteousness, not with an attitude of I got it all figured out, what's wrong with you? But the church of Jesus Christ that is filled with the grace of God moves into your world saying, I need the same thing you need. And everything that I have and everything that I am is by the grace of God, an attitude of humility and weakness. And thirdly, the gospel is about the power of God. It's a powerful message, and it transforms sinners. It rebuilds that which is broken in families, in marriages, in relationships, in communities, and it takes back for God what the devil stole. The gospel is powerful. The gospel is powerful. People who believe the gospel are taking back the territory that the devil has stolen. Living worthy of the gospel is having the expectation that God will do powerful things in our community, not through our niftiness, but through the power of the gospel. So, here's the question, how do you get from believing the gospel for yourself, for your own salvation, to living worthy of the gospel? How do you get from there to there? Well two things i would I would suggest one is meditate on the Gospel when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that is one way Jesus has given us to to meditate on what his finished work means for us. Um, and then, as you read your Bible, see the Gospel proclaimed in every page. One example is you know. If you, if you read the Bible through in a year, like, I do this through means of podcasts. I, I listen to a podcast, and I get a guy reading the Bible to me while I drive around. I drive around for a living. That's what I do. Put about 100, 150 miles a day on my car. And while I'm driving around, uh, this person reads the Bible to me. I don't even know his name. One of his I'd love to find him and thank him. Uh, but he reads the Bible to me. And I get through the entire Bible in a year. Now, the hard part for me sometimes is listening to all the prophets. Now, the worst part for me is actually Leviticus and Numbers. I I always get, oh, it's just hard. Um, Details and laws and laws and laws and laws. And all those laws point to the holiness of God, satisfied in the finished work of Christ. But then another hard part for me is the, is, um, The uh, the the prophets, especially when there are long rants, you have done this, you have done this, and you have done this. You have forsaken. You have done. You uh, you know, it goes on, and 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 I'm thinking, how long is this going to go on? And it goes on and on and on. And then I have two two reactions. One, God has the right to talk like this. Secondly, Jesus Christ has received the penalty everything God is talking about on my behalf. Look at the, see the gospel on every page of the Holy Bible. It's there. So, meditate on the gospel. And then, I would suggest, wonder. Wonder at the gospel. Who am I? You are mindful of me, that you hear me when I call. (laughs) Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Wonder, wonder. Oh, what wonder how amazing Jesus Christ, the King of kings, deigns to call me his beloved and bids me rest beneath his wings. My sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. You wonder, how could it be for me? How could it be? How, how could Jesus love me so much that he went that far? To reconcile me to his Father. Wonder at the Gospel. Wonder. Wonder. And then look at verse 27 and 28. Paul says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says, don't do it for me, says Paul. You might never see me again, so don't do it for me. And then he says later on, in no way alarmed by your opponents, and don't not do it because of them. Don't do it for me, and don't not do it because of them. Don't, I, don't want any, I don't want my absence or presence to have any bearing on you living worthy of the gospel. I can trust Jesus for that. Go to Jesus about this. And don't be intimidated into silence when you really believe that the gospel is powerful. Do it because Jesus is worth it. Now, what does this look like? Living worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does this look like? Verse 27. Unity for the sake of the gospel. The world needs to see a unified church. Standing firm in one spirit. That's the Greek word for a soldier who won't move. He's not going to turn around and run away from his enemies. An example of the kinds of things that keep us from standing firm. We're involved in a conversation with somebody in our family or somebody at work, and they say, now come on. Come on. You mean to tell me that your religion is the only one? Nobody believes that anymore. This is the 21st century. That Jesus, your Jesus, is the only way to get to somebody who calls himself the true God. Come on! Now, not standing firm would be like this. Well, now that you put it that way, oh no, oh, that's that's tough. Oh man, oh yeah, I don't know, I don't know, I I I don't know. I know you make it sound pretty bad. So yeah, maybe it's not really okay. Your answer might be as simple as this. Can you just take some time to think about your answer? Because you're going to get asked that question if you haven't already. If you're not asked that question, you're not doing any evangelism, you're not talking to anybody in the world. But if you do talk to anybody in the world about the gospel, you're going to get that question. And and, and even if your answer is simple as this, Jesus Christ has been faithful to me. I know he loves me. And it's he who said, I am the way and the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to God but through Him. So I trust Him. Trust Him. Stand firm. You don't have to be what they call an apologist in order to stand firm. In fact, most what we call apologetics, a lot of times it's for us (laughs) to build our faith so that we can stand firm. Stand firm. All right. But you also have a backup. In one spirit, it says. Our whole church is called to stand firm together in one spirit. We grow together in our steadfastness. We are called to grow together in our confidence We're called to grow together in our hope in the gospel. Soldiers don't stand firm all by themselves. They just get picked off, right? But soldiers can stand firm together and conquer. So it says striving together with one soul for the faith of the gospel. Now, striving is the word that we get the word athletics from. But Paul is not talking about intramural athletics. He's not talking about weekend soccer practice. He's talking about the Olympics. And if any of you know any of the stories of anybody who's participated in the Olympics, it's like they have to live practically one-dimensional lives in order to get to the place where they're going to get the gold. And he says that we strive, athleto, together, with one soul for the faith of the gospel. You're finding 100 ways together as a church to get the gospel into as many heads and hearts as we can together as a church. We have different spiritual gifts. Some of us are going to greet people coming into the door. Some of us are going to, you know, some of us are going to to help people figure out where to take their children to the Sunday school class. Some of us are going to preach. Some of us are going to lead worship. Some of us are going to, uh, to, to teach the children. You know, everybody's got different spiritual gifts, different ministries, the same Holy Spirit making us one in spirit for one purpose in getting the gospel and as many heads and as many hearts as we possibly can together as a church striving together for the gospel. There are two ways to get unity. See, this is all about church unity, and that's going to, that, this, 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 Uh, theme of unity is going to be in the second chapter as well, but we're starting it out now. So there are two ways to get unity. There is the miraculous way and the non-miraculous way. You can have non-miraculous unity if everybody is poor or if everybody is rich. Economic unity. You can have non-miraculous unity if everybody's a Republican or if everybody's a Democrat. Non-miraculous unity. You can have non-miraculous unity if everybody is white or if everybody's Latino, if everybody's African American, if everybody's Asian. You can, ha- you, you can have non-miraculous unity based on things that we just share because we have these things in common, but it doesn't take the Holy Spirit for us to understand each other. You can also have non-miraculous unity because you never see each other. Unity by avoidance. I won't have any conflict with you because I don't even know where you are. I can't find you during the week. See you next week. No conflict. We just come to a big meeting every, every week and we got unity because who are we? We, we, we don't even know each other. That can happen. Non-miraculous unity. Jesus prayed in that same prayer that I mentioned before, asking the Father to make us one. True biblical unity, which is part of living as citizens, a life that is worthy of the gospel together, it, part of unit, unity is part of that. So true biblical unity is created says Ephesians 4, by the Spirit of God. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It means the Spirit of God has created us, created the unity. The Spirit of God has made us one, fundamentally. But we are also called to make, take every effort to live that out and to get in each other's lives and experience the unity of, in this diverse body of, of, of people, and the, the, like, the only thing we have in common is Jesus Christ, and it takes a miracle of the Holy Spirit to bring unity into that situation. And so, we are called to, to, to strive together, unified, for the faith of the gospel. And like marriage unity, it's not something as easy as falling off a law. Just like marriage unity, it is something we've got to work at. Unity happens in relationship. Do you only work together or do you also hang out? Think about your ministry. those of you who are in ministry teams. And I've had to think about this as a, as a leader of, um, a, a, of a worship team. Do we just work together? Do I look at my, my brothers and sisters in the worship team as people that I'm trying to get a sound out of? I want this kind of sound. I want that kind of sound. Okay, get that sound. Oh, that's good. That's good. You know, just getting a certain sound out of. Or, or. Are we having gospel fueled relationship? Are we discipling one another? Are we pointing each other to Jesus Christ? Um, think about your ministry team. Maybe you know with the uh, with the children, or, or with with the um, with ESL or with only Christian school, and you think, okay, do we have unity on our team? Do we know each other? Are we having relationships with one another? Are we pointing one another to Jesus Christ? Or are we just doing the task together, getting it done, and going home when it's done, exhausted? Different ways of looking at it. So you have these relationships but then it takes a certain attitude. If you're going to engage in relationships with people in the body of Christ, you're going to do ministry together, you're going to strive together for the faith of the gospel in order to be a community that lives as citizens, a life that is worthy of the gospel. If you're going to do that, you have to have this kind of attitude. And it goes something like this. I trust the work of God. I trust your motives. I trust you to be doing this for the glory of God. I trust you as a fellow disciple of Jesus Christ. I trust that you have been given a new heart, that just as Ezekiel chapter 36 says, that the heart of stone has been taken away and a a new heart of flesh, a heart that pumps for Christ, a heart that says yes to God, has been given to you, and I trust your new good heart. That makes a lot of difference. Do you do that with your spouse? Do you do that with your other brothers and sisters in this church? Or do you suspect each other's motives? Uh, She just wants to take over. She's got an agenda. He's got a power thing. Maybe so. You can... You know, you can go head to head. But you'll never know if you don't have a relationship. And you'll never know if you don't talk about it. But you got to trust the work of God in the in giving each other new hearts. The point is this. You will stand firm together and you will be a community of people whose life is worthy of the gospel if your unity is deep and you will shine like stars in this world if we're practicing hard won biblical unity and then there's one other thing that marks the church that is living worthy of the gospel and that is a willingness to suffer dang willingness to suffer why does he have to bring this up all the time Paul talks about this a lot. You notice, you read his epistles, and think, okay, great. <laughs> That's good stuff. And then he says, willingness to suffer. And then it's sobering. Biblical Christianity. Now, I'm not going to go into all that stuff. Okay, wait a minute. All right. Verses 29 through 30. Paul's in jail because he can't keep his mouth shut about the gospel. But he wants you to know that God gave you two gifts. It says, verses 29 and 30, he gave you two gifts. First, he gave you the gift of faith. You have to have the gift of faith in order to trust Jesus Christ for your salvation. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 that it, you are saved by grace through faith, and this faith is not even of yourselves. It is a gift of God that no one should boast. So God has given you faith. He has given He has given you the gift of believing in Christ. And he gave you another gift along with it. It says that, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. He gave you the gift of suffering for the sake of Jesus. In Acts chapter four and five, the apostles get into trouble. Uh, they start out with healing a guy, and you know no good deed goes unpunished. And so, after healing the man at the temple steps, then they, and then they begin to preach about Jesus Christ, they get in trouble. They get dragged in by the Sanhedrin, and uh, and, and and they said, "Don't don't talk about Jesus anymore." They said, "Whatever, we're going to still do it." And they, they 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 talk about Jesus more, and then they the Sanhedrin drags them back in, Peter and John. And then, then uh, they, they, uh, the, 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 what happens between these two events is a prayer meeting. And in the prayer meeting, they pray. Not that God would change the government or that God would give us more religious freedom or that God would, would, uh, would, would make things easier on us. They pray for boldness and for miracles, the two things that got them into trouble in the first place. And then they come back, and they're still preaching about Jesus Christ. And then they get whipped and flogged, and they say, look, I don't care what you say, we have to do what God says because we obey God, not you. And they get flogged, uh, you know, whipped. And it says that they came back rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. There may come a time in this country where Christianity will become less and less and less okay with the rest of civilization that whole bit of exclusivity that only Jesus is the way to the father is going to become more and more a stench in the nostrils of people that you're going to work with and live with and and, uh, and and just do business with and it may become a, there may come a time when you will have to go to jail because you talk to somebody about Jesus. There may come a time when you lose your job because you were talking to somebody about Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus is rather controversial. And the fact that, 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 um, uh, that, that, that public spaces remove Christian icons and Christian messages from those public spaces is an example of how Jesus is still dangerous. And here you are lined up with him. You're united to him. And that's going to make trouble for you. It may make trouble for you. Paul says that, um, uh, Paul Paul went around to the churches at one place in Acts, in the book of Acts, it says that he just went around from church to church saying we must go through many tribulations before we enter the kingdom of God. And this may happen with y'all as well, with, uh, with any of us. And that's why all these warnings about standing firm are here. And then you also, you know, you also have suffering just from knowing people that you love that aren't saved yet. That generates a suffering all its own. Sometimes you enter into the suffering of others because you're weeping with those who weep. Willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel in a church that is miraculously unified by the Holy Spirit, living together as citizens of Philadelphia and as citizens of heaven, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. So, citizens of Philadelphia, citizens of heaven, let your lifestyle be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Pursue unity and and be willing to suffer Because he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we're here because we believe the word of God. We believe what it says. We believe it's true. We believe that your word doesn't fail. We believe that your word is without errors. We believe that Jesus Christ is proclaimed in your word, that he is our only hope for life, for godliness, for acceptance with you. And Lord, we thank you so much for the gospel that has taken away every barrier between us and God, our creator, and has brought us together so that we could be one. The gospel has given us God, the great treasure. are so thankful. Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit to speak to each one of us individually as part of a corporate body of unified people, what it means for us to take the next step of living our lives worthy of the gospel in all its holiness and its grace Jesus, help us. We pray that in the name of Jesus, who alone can help us. Amen.